sermons that I would want my kids to remember. They have certain sermons, certainly growing up with your dad as a preacher, that they've heard so many times. <laughs> They're never going to forget it, and it's not because they don't want to. They've just heard it so many times. But I truly believe these rules of the road were given to us by our Heavenly Father so that we would end up in heaven with Him. And these rules have value. Just like the psalmist says in Psalms 119 verse 30, kind of our focus passage for the week, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. And as we've gone through and looked at these rules, we've looked at these rules in a very personal way. We've looked at them from the point of view from uh, Elijah the prophet who was speaking to people who wouldn't take accountability for their actions. So he shares with them not only a sermon about accountability, but more importantly, a sermon about the heart of their God. Why would you not take accountability? Even when you turn from His way, He is there to be merciful to you. So turn back to Him and live. And so live your life, regardless of what you do, regardless of what happens, regardless of what wrong turn you may take, live your life always accepting responsibility for all of your actions. The second lesson, we looked at it from the life of Joseph, a powerful patriarch of faith who even though his life was filled with so much adversity, so much misfortune, so much evil, he lived his life as if his heavenly father was always right there with him. Fear God. Keep his commandments. And last night we looked at it in a very personal way from not just the life of Jonathan, but more importantly his armor bearer. To surround yourself always with godly people. Well tonight, tonight our focus of our lesson is going to center around the Lord himself. But instead of going to the Gospels, I want you to take down the Heavenly Library and go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. If you know anything about the prophet Isaiah, we know that his name means the Lord is salvation. And at the time of his ministry, the children of Israel were in dire need of salvation. Now here's what's interesting. They're not in captivity, but unfortunately they're on their way there. They're free in a sense, but in another sense they are bound by their own selfishness and greed. And ironically, during the days of Isaiah's ministry, the, the, the children of Israel, especially the southern kingdom, Judah, is, is, is going to be enjoying prosperity. And they're actually going to have three great revivals during the, the teaching of, of Isaiah when he's, when he's prophesying and sharing these words to the people during the days of Isaiah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. But yet pride is sleeping in, seeping in. And Isaiah knows that they're on their way to unfaithfulness. God has told him what that outcome is going to be, and it's going to lead them to captivity. But instead of just preaching doom and gloom, Isaiah is going to be commissioned to share the prophecies of the Messiah. 
In fact, Isaiah is often referred to as the Messianic prophet because so much of his work is going to center around Jesus, the one to come. There's going to be servant songs like Isaiah chapter 53. And then there's going to be this passage in Isaiah chapter 42. And here's what Isaiah says about the chosen one of the Lord. This is the same one who earlier he will describe him as a child who would come and bear the government on his shoulders. The one who would be wonderful, a counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace. One whose increase of his rule would never have any end. And I'm sure when all the people heard that, they were like, yes, bring him now. But Isaiah goes, there's more. There's another description to this wonderful child, this mighty God, this counselor. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, nor lift up his voice, nor make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Do you hear that? This mighty God, this counselor, this prince of peace, this one who's going to bear the governments upon his shoulders, who rule will have no end, he's going to be a servant. A servant. I, I, I know you were, you were here last night, most of you were, but there was actually a big debate going on on television where there were candidates from all over trying to vie for the highest office of the land. Anybody watch any of the highlights? Did you go back and read any of that? Good, then you saved yourself from a lot of aggravation. But here's what's interesting. Have you ever known a candidate... Have you ever known anybody vying for a position, vying for a job, vying for a vote, vying for attention? Have you ever known anyone at any time to say, my credential is, I'm a servant. But wait, let me define servant for you. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I get a little frustrated when somebody is going off to the Caribbean Isles going to a conference, and they are a servant of the people as they eat shrimp and caviar and whatever else they shove in their mouth down there on those trips. It's not servitude. When when Jesus is described as a servant, I want you to grasp and understand that the word servant here actually means one who is a bond servant. It is one who is a manservant. In other words, it is one who literally belongs to another. 
And what Isaiah tells us about our Lord Jesus is that our Lord is willingly willingly going to submit to this servitude. If you really want to go and look at Jesus' credentials, when he comes up and he begins to share his ministry, his credential is nothing. Nothing. No great education. No great, uh, you might say, ancestry to lean back on. No great wealth. There's nothing of prominence that you would say, hey, this is the guy we want leading us. He is a carpenter. He is average. He is normal. And yet even more so, when he, begun, he begins his ministry and begins to do his job, he does not do it in a flamboyant way. In fact, he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sir, can you show us, can you show us your address? Don't have one. Can you show us your transportation? I'm going to need to steal one. Can you show us where your next meal is going to come from? We'll find out at the end of the day. Who does that? Who does that? Well, somebody who is seeking... The will of the Lord. God describes many of his great warriors of faith this way. In Job 1 and in verse 8, when God is speaking to Satan. You remember what God said as he introduced Job to Satan? He says, hey Satan. Kind of wandering back along the face of the earth. Have you ever considered my servant, Job? I don't know about you, but I, I'd have probably gone, have you ever considered the rich guy, Job, who has everything going for him? Have, have you ever considered the father, Job, who has so many kids, they're coming out his ears? Have you ever considered the shepherd, the herdsman, the entrepreneur? God says, have you considered my servant, Job? He'll say the same thing of Abraham in Genesis 26. And in Numbers 12, he'll refer to Moses as his servant. Caleb will be described as his servant in Numbers 14. And in Psalms 89 and in verse 3, David is referred to as a servant. Jim McGuigan in his commentary on Isaiah said this, quote, Who is it? that God upholds, chooses, delights in, and gives His Spirit to. A servant. He rejects demagogues and overlords, and He chooses a servant. He brings down and weakens the self-seeker, and He upholds a servant. He is judiciously wrathful toward the self-promoter and the exploiter, and He just delights in... A servant. He leaves the self-seeker to promote his own cause and succeed by the flesh while he gives his spirit to a servant. A servant. The Apostle Paul, when he's describing our Lord, will say this of Jesus. He made himself of no reputation and he took the form of a bondservant. I don't know about you, but I really kind of marvel at that. 
Because I know, I know what I would be prone to do in any situation in which somebody is not giving me the respect, giving me the ear, or giving me the attention that I deserve, I would drop my trump card in a second. Oh, so you're not listening to me. Which part of me being God did you not hear? Oh, so you're going to get mad at what I said? Which part of coming from heaven did you not understand? I've often marveled not so much at what our Lord did miraculously, but what He never did miraculously. If you had the power and somebody came at you like some of the Pharisees did him, would you not just levitate them and throw them up against the wall? James and John said, let's call down thunder. Let's rock this place. I'd have been thinking, let's do it. Just one little village, blow it up. Man, wouldn't everybody pay attention then? But notice what is said of our Lord. He embraces the role of a servant. And doesn't even consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, Go back to our text and notice in verse 2. Here's what's even more fascinating. If that doesn't grab your attention, he's always going to speak with grace. He's never going to cry aloud. He's never going to lift his voice. He's not going to be making it heard in the street. Well, what it simply implies is he's not going to force his will on anyone. He's not going to make anyone listen. In fact, how many times do you go and you look at the biblical account and our Lord just simply says, okay, I'll leave. Okay, you don't want to listen. I'm gone. One of the saddest passages in all of Scripture is when he goes to his own hometown, but they refuse to believe in him. They go, wait, wait, isn't this that carpenter boy? Isn't this that son of Joseph and Mary? Isn't he just one of us? And you know what it says in the text right after that? And he did not do many mighty works there. He goes, okay. Okay. Later, Isaiah will record it like this in Isaiah 53. Like a lamb that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Just out of curiosity, how do you react when somebody's accusing you of something? How do you respond when somebody says something evil of you or speaks an untruth? Jesus goes, I just keep my mouth shut. He doesn't force himself. Pat Peter will record it like this in 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who does that? A servant. 
Uh, next verse, chapter 42 and in verse 3. Notice, he's going to serve all men with gentleness. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy sometimes to reach out to the afflicted, to reach out to the hurting, to reach out to those who haven't been blessed with all the goodness of life that I have. And my heart goes out to them to reel them in. And it was the same for our Lord. But never forget, he also ate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. He also reached out to the elite. Often referred to my life sometimes as like a tree, and I can, I can bend so easy to these people who've been humbled by life, but the arrogant... <clears throat> But notice what it says of Jesus. He is so gentle with all men. It was as if they were like a bruised reed. That analogy probably doesn't mean much to us. We don't see a bruised reed. Think, 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 of, think of a piece of grass that's down by the river, right there on the banks. Maybe one of those longer pieces of grass. Maybe a cattail, if you've ever seen one of those or know what that is. And it's, it's, it's been snapped, but it's barely hanging on. There's just a couple of fibers. Our Lord is so gentle, He can go and restore it without it breaking. Or a smoldering wick that's already burned and it's just getting ready to fall off. He is so gentle. He not only keeps it from falling, he restores it. It speaks to his compassion and his gentleness. It speaks to the point that he's always understanding that no matter who it is, even if they don't realize it, they need his touch. Paul says it like this. It's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then if that's not enough, notice what the prophet says about his character with respect, with respect to his determination. He'll continue and continue and continue and continue to serve Constantly, persistently, and he will not fail. I got to confess, I've been known to get a little aggravated when I've done something nice for somebody and they didn't say thank you. I yell at people while driving all the time. I let you in. A little hand wave would be nice. I waited and waited and waited. Where are you? Why aren't you here? See if I wait again. And not Jesus. 
Men would hide their faces from him. His family would think that he's out of his mind, Mark 3. His disciples would say, you're too hard. His accusers would say, you're Satan. In fact, you're a Beelzebub. The judges would say, you're foolish, tired, hungry, maligned, beaten, slapped, whipped, and eventually crucified. He never gives up. He never gives in. And he obediently serves all the way until he's uttered those final words on the cross. It is finished. You know what's interesting when you go and you look at this wonderful book we call the Bible? Is that when you go and you look at some of those stories about the life of Jesus through the Gospels, you see the event, you see what happened, and you wonder, well, what was he thinking? And then you go back to passages like Isaiah 42, and you know exactly what he was thinking. You know exactly where his mind was focused. I've been given a mission. I've been told to keep my mouth shut. I need to be gentle. It's not going to be easy. But I'm going to persevere, persevere, persevere all the way to the end. And what is it that Jesus would say to his disciples? Do you want to be great? And please bear in mind, he was not saying being great was bad. He wanted them to be great. But here's what he did say about greatness. If any man desires to be the greatest, if any man desires to be first, let him be last of all and servant of all. And what this brings us to is the fourth rule of the spiritual road. I must embrace the role of of a servant. Some of you have asked about my kids. In fact, I even talked about it at the beginning of my lesson how important I feel that these sermons are to the spiritual well-being of my kids. And, and, and Jill is, is 22 years old. Gray is 20. And they're, they're, I'm sure I'm just like you. I love to talk about my kids. And, and, and I want to I share what they're doing. But do you know what my prayer is every day for my children? My prayer every day is not that they'll always go to church. My prayer is not that every day they're going to be in a building that says Church of Christ and they're going to make sure they're at three services a week and this, that, and the other. The prayer that my wife and I have for our kids is that they'll be servants of God. Servants. Because what Jesus is showing us and what Jesus is imploring us to grasp when we say that we follow in His steps is that we'll understand that life and service to Him is more than just about being in a building. It's more than just about adhering to some religious code. It is more than just about theory or doctrinal matters about what we should think. In no way, in no way am I saying those things are not important and those things are certainly a part of who we are as the body of Christ. But our Lord has called us to more. He has called us to be servants to a world. He has called us to follow in His steps. And He's called us to a calling that will hold us tight to the Father Himself. Our Father delights in servants. 
Jesus says, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I don't live for me. I live for others. I belong to them. Why should we do this? Why is this so important? Well, you know what's interesting? When you go to Scripture, Scripture gives us so many reasons, so many reasons why servitude, servitude should be the highest, the highest thing on our to-do list each and every day, that this should be our heart and our attitude. First of all, if we just look at it from what it says of Jesus as a servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53, it was His servitude that pleased the Lord. And if that was the only reason given, if that was the only reason in the Bible for being a servant, that should be sufficient for us. But notice, notice what the Bible says over and over and over again about the value of servitude. In Philippians chapter 2, you know verse 12, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've heard that verse. The very next verse tells you why you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God's will to work in you. Our Lord works through the servant. In Proverbs 10 and in verse 22, we will be blessed by the Lord when we have the heart of the servant. We will find true riches as the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 11 and in verse 25. Why? It is the generous soul that will truly be rich. In Galatians 6 and in verse 14, the whole law, the whole law, Paul says, is fulfilled in a love, in, the, in a word, and that word is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Acts 20 and verse 35, a quote from Jesus outside the Gospels, it is more blessed to give than receive. In Ephesians 5 and in verses 1 through 2. Therefore, says Paul, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. In 1 Timothy 6 verses 18 and 19, let those who are rich be rich in good works. Not storing up for this life here and now, but storing up a foundation for time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Anybody go to work today? Anybody have to go to work today? Why did you go to work? Why did you go to work? Well, she said, I got to pay my bills. That's a good reason. And Scripture talks about that. Pay your bills. You hear that, kids? Pay your bills. It's about time, some of you. What are you guys doing? Y'all still living at home? You got have a job? Anything? What's going on? But do you know what the real reason is you have a job besides just paying your bills? In Ephesians 4 and in verse 28 it tells us so that you'll may, you may have something to give to those who are in need. You work so that you cannot just provide for yourself which is important. but you work so that when you know that there is a need, you have the opportunity and the blessing to share with somebody else. Do 
You see the value, the value of labor? In fact, Jesus will say this in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. In other words, you're not storing up for now. You're not storing up for now. Anybody here ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You been to Chuck E. Cheese? There is no greater con artist and rat in the world than Chuck E. Cheese. You go in there with your kids, and they're all so small, and there's old Chuck E. Cheese up there dancing. And Chuck E. Cheese feeds you the worst pizza there has ever been made on the history of the earth. He's back there just taking cardboard, putting some marinara sauce on it, and serving it to you. And your kids are going, this is great, this is great. You're like, oh, my word. And then Chuck E. Cheese has all these games where you get tickets. And it hypnotizes your children where they're like, Daddy, Daddy, give me more tokens. Daddy, Daddy, give me more tokens. I want more tickets. I want more tickets. Tickets, Daddy, tickets, Daddy. And you give them tickets. Ah, Daddy, I need more tickets. Tickets, Daddy, give me money. Tickets, more tickets. And then you spend all day. You spend $500 and you get 1,500 tickets. And your kid's all excited because there's a big prize mountain as you move out the door. And it is loaded with prizes. And you carry all your tickets up there, all 1,500 of them. And you are so proud of yourself. You've you've played more skee-ball than you've ever played in your whole life. And you set it all up there on the counter. And a little kid comes up, make a minimum wage, goes, what you want? And you go, I got a lot of tickets here. What can I get? And you look on the top, and there's that big Nintendo, and then there's the big, huge stuffed animal, and then there's all these fancy accessories, and then you begin to notice, wait, if you want the Nintendo, that's 42 million tickets. (laughs) The stuffed animal is 32 million. And you look at the attendant, you go, I got 1,500 tickets. What can I get? And he goes all the way through the counter, and he comes to the very end, right at the very front, and he goes, you can get this throw-up, or you can get the rubber lizard. What will it be? And you look at your child, and you're like, I've just been ripped off. And you look at the guy, and you want to kill him, but you can't do it because your child is there in front of you. And you say, honey... How about we come back and save up more tickets so that we can get a better prize? And your child goes, no, I want the lizard. Give me the lizard. And you hand over 1,500 tickets that cost you $500 to get a rubber lizard. And the guy just smiles as he hands it to you. And you're going, ah, ah, ah. And as you walk out, you look at that rat and you go, I'll be back. If you're a parent and you've been to Chuck E. Cheese, that is truth. (laughs) But let me put it in another perspective. That's our Heavenly Father looking at every single one of us when we cling to our possessions and the things of this world. What are you doing? This earth is my footstool, says the Lord. 
In fact, there's nothing here of value at all. I, I am offering you an eternal kingdom, and you're investing in the rubber lizard of this earth. When you could be storing up treasures in heaven. I don't know exactly how that, quote, currency is going to play out. I don't know exactly what those treasures are going to look out. But when I look to my Lord and my Lord gives me this instruction and shows me the value and points me in the direction, and if my Lord says it is great, it must really be great. If my Lord describes it as a treasure and he mocks the gold and the silver in this world, it must really be a treasure. And then you know what servants do? As Paul says, I became all things to all men. I do whatever I got to do to reach any soul that I can practically. If I got to be weak, I'll become weak. If I got to be strong, I'll become wrong. If I got to act like a Jew, I'll be a Jew. If I got to be a Greek, hey, I'll talk Greek. So that I might by all means save some. I love to get to our church building early. Love it, love it, love it. After you've worked with a place for nine years, you know people's stories, you know about them, you know their struggles, you know their victories, you know their challenges. And, and, and every time people come in that door, I don't care, they, I just want to clap. It's just you and to hug and say hey and, and to feel the excitement, that's great. And there's a reunion there. You know what I'd really like to be the greeter for? Heaven's gates. And if just one person walked up to me as they came to that gate and they said, thank you. You help me get here. Thank you. I may not have been here if it wasn't for you. Thank you. You took care of me when nobody else would. What kind of a price are you going to put on that? Do you hear what our Lord's telling you? This. This is the reason you serve. But in the same way, our Lord also gives us the warnings. And He reminds us over and over again to the heart that is unwilling to buy into servitude. To the heart that is unwilling to humble themselves to their Lord's directive. There's going to be something that accompanies that. And it's always going to be misery. And misery always accompanies first and foremost selfishness. In James chapter 3 and in verse 16, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will always be disorder in every vile practice. Remember the apostles? Remember what they were doing? They were, they were doing, even as our Lord was making His way through Jerusalem and the cross was imminent or just right around the corner. Do you remember what they were doing? They were arguing. They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. Pure selfishness. I tell you, I used to think that I really was unselfish. 
prided myself on many of the things that I did and many of the ways that I served and thinking to myself, well, I must, I'm doing pretty good. I, I, was, I wasn't trying to be cocky, but you know, I was like, I know I'm better than most until I met a young girl by the name of Micaiah. My kids were playing soccer, and we're at the YMCA, and so I'm coaching both of their teams. And unfortunately, at our YMCA, like it is in many places, it's hard to get parents to participate. So I was literally coaching three teams, one team I didn't even have a kid on. I was a good coach. My daughter's team was actually really good. Our YMCA team had never won the city championship, but this year we had a chance because we had a little girl by the name of Micaiah on the team. One of the other coaches always brought her to practice, and she was always out there running around. She was a little bit small for her age, but, boy, she was a bundle of energy, and I would just get her into the open field and make it happen for her, and she would go down and score, and, man, we were doing good. And one night, that other coach said, hey, do you mind, do you mind, I got Micaiah to practice, but do you mind taking her home? And I'm like, oh, no way. Coach Phil would be honored to go take Micaiah home. Well, she didn't exactly go by the name Micaiah. She went by the nickname Tweety Bird. And so we always called her Tweety Bird. So after practice, I said to Tweety Bird, I said, Tweety Bird, Coach Phil's going to take you home. She went, yeah, great, Coach Phil. And I said, well, that's wonderful. We're gonna, we need to get on home now. So if you'll just tell me how to get there, where do you live? And she goes, Coach Phil, I live in an alley. I went, oh, come on, Tweety Bird. She was a huge cut up, and we're getting in the minivan. And so my kids are in the back two seats right behind me, and then she was getting in the seat in the back because they had to get strapped into kind of their seats and this, that, and the other. And I remember we were shutting the door, and I said, all right, Tweety Bird, it's getting a little late. I know you're having fun, but where do you live? Coach Phil, I live in an alley. And I'm looking at my kids in the rearview mirror, and both my kids are going, so I said, well, Coach Phil's going to start driving. We're going to drive. I, I kind of have a pretty good idea where you live. Coach I gave me a heads up, so I'm just going to start driving through Bessemer, and you tell me where I need to turn. She goes, okay. Well, we drove through Bessemer, Alabama, and we went across the railroad tracks. It means exactly what you think. We went across the other side of the track. And she had me turn left and turn right to a place my van had never been before. It's a very old part of town, kind of dilapidated. And we got between 16th and 17th Street. And she goes, turn here. And I got a little stern, Tweety Bird. Now's not the time to be playing around with Coach Phil. Where do you live? She goes, I live down that alley. I look back at my kids, and both my kids are going. I locked the doors, made sure all the windows were up, and I turned down the darkest alley I think I've ever driven down in my life. And I'm ready to gun it. We got about four houses down, and there was an old carport that had a 30-watt bulb shining out in front of it with a screen door. Carpet wasn't even fit, fitted. It was just lying up against the walls. I could see a mattress on the floor. 
And Tweedyberry goes, I live here. Tweety Bird, where's your daddy? Oh, Coach Phil, I don't know who my daddy is. Tweety Bird, where's your mom? She's in prison. Tweety Bird, who do you live with? My grandmother. I said, where is she? Well, she works at Bud Cookies on the night shift. Tweety Bird, who is at your house right now? She goes, my 12-year-old brother. I said, well, you're not staying. About that time, a relative came up. It was an aunt. Hey, Coach Phil, hey, thanks for bringing Tweety Bird home. This is great. And I got out and talked to her, and I said, this is where y'all live? How did I not know this? How was I celebrating every victory, thinking I'm the greatest coach in the world, celebrating a near city championship that is on the way, and I've got the greatest soccer player in the world, and I don't know that she's coming home every night to this? My van needs to go to those tracks a little bit more. We got her out of there. Let some folks know at church. We found them a place to live. We furnished it. But selfishness has a way of seeping in even when you don't think you got it. And sometimes you just need to go where you normally don't go. To be that blessing you really want to be. Pride. Misery is always going to accompany pride. What was it Lot was saying? I can handle Sodom. What was, what was Satan's lie to Eve? Don't you want to be like God? Be very, very careful of your ambitions and your desires and be very, very careful of those desires when they're outside the spiritual realm. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing, hear me on this, there is nothing wrong with being wealthy. There is nothing wrong with being educated. There is nothing wrong with having things. The Bible is very clear on that. It is not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And we need to be very mindful of the grace and the mercy that God has showered down upon us so that we can have the things that we have. And never fall into the trap of thinking, well, it was all me. Thirdly, Materialism. How often does our Lord remind us of materialism? In fact, he's going to tell a whole story about a rich man and Lazarus, and that was all about money. In fact, our Lord is going to preach on money many, many times. He'll talk about a rich man who is constantly building bigger barns. He will condemn the actions later of Ananias and Sapphira. He'll warn a young man who says, all I want to do is go to heaven. And he will say to that young man, then you know what's in the law. And that young man says, yes, I keep all that's in the law. And Jesus goes, do you really want to go? Yes. Do you really want to go? Yeah. Do you really want to go? Yes. Then give up all you got. The young man went, no. 
The point of that story is not that you have to live in poverty to please the Lord. The point of that story is to be mindful that you don't love things. Some good friends of mine were missionaries in Mexico for many years and they had to come back to the States because their daughter got sick and so she needed proper medical attention so they came back and I saw him a few months later after he had moved back to the States and I said, how's everything going? And he goes, I got to be honest with you, it's been hard. I said, really? It's been hard? It seems like it'd be a lot more comfortable. Oh yeah, it's more comfortable. It's been hard. He goes, Americans just don't realize how materialistic they are. How many times we use jobs and things and activities to forsake the work of the Lord just so we can get a little more. And he shared with me a story, a true story that happened to them while they were down there in Mexico. They went to visit a family, <laughs> family of some Mexican brethren who lived in a house that had a dirt floor. And they went to eat dinner with him. And as they came into the house, his wife just commented out of politeness on a picture that was hanging on the wall to their uh, Mexican guest. And, and so they had a little conversation about it. Then they went on with their meal and they had a delightful evening. And then as they were heading home, the lady of the house went and took the picture off the wall and handed it to him and said, here, please, you take it. She said, oh, no, 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 I can't take this. Please take it. And they understood very clearly they needed to take it so they didn't want to insult their host. On their way home, they were admiring the picture. <laughs> kind of laughing about, oh, be careful of what you compliment. And they flipped it over on the back. There was a message picture was a wedding gift actually given to that couple that they just gave away. And my friend said, down there, things are just things. They're just things. Let's wrap this up by going to a description of our Lord that comes to us from Philippians chapter 2. Our Lord has called us clearly, clearly to lofty heights. He's called us to be lights to a world. He has called us to be different. And that difference is at times going to be a great challenge. But our Lord reminds us over and over and over again that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And everything that I have, everything that I may earn, everything that I may obtain is a blessing from the Father in Lord willing so that I can use those gifts and use those means and use my life to be a blessing to others, to be a servant, to be a servant. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is now going to give us insight into Jesus. 
And and here's what he says, begin reading in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. In the definition there is bond servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first thing I want you to see as your take home, as you follow in the steps of your Savior, your Lord and your King, that you have His mind. Have His mind. This is the attitude of our Lord. Our Lord saw Himself as a servant. He saw Himself as one who belonged to others. And one of the last visual images that He gives His apostles as He's in that upper room is that He takes a towel and He wraps it around His waist and He goes around the room and does the work of a servant and He washes all of their feet. The point of that story was not that every single time that we come in this building that one of us gets down on our hands and knees and makes sure we just gratuitously wash everybody's feet. The point of that story is to remind us that we belong to one another. We belong to one another. And we never think so highly of ourselves. We never place our, ourselves above anyone else. And so how do you know? How do you know when you're really a servant? How do you know? Isn't that the big question? How do you know? You know you're a servant when somebody treats you like one. It's when you know. And somebody treats you like one. Remember what the apostles did the first time that they were able to suffer for our Lord? They rejoiced. Yes. Yes. Notice as Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want you to see and understand that servitude is your aspiration. It is your goal. You long for salvation. And salvation is given to the heart of the servant. It is given to the one who will humble themselves before their king, who will not only love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul and all their strength, but they're going to love their neighbor as themselves. And let me ask you a question, very important question. Is it possible, is it possible to say that I love my Lord when I don't love my neighbor? Is it possible for my love for my Lord to be any greater than my love for my neighbor. Our Lord has called us. He's called us to the greatest 
work there is. A work that leads souls to heaven. A work that resembles Him. He's called us to be servants. To be servants. Our Lord was never ashamed to be a servant. (laughs) That's who I am. He was never ashamed to belong to others. And then last, notice what Paul goes on to say. Here's Here's how it plays out. Here's the action of a servant. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I tell you, there was any passage in the scripture that I'd like to take out, that one just, mm, mm, mm. Surely the Greek is misinterpreted there. Come on, we got to figure out something on this. No. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Who shines as lights in the world? Servants shine. Holding fast to the word of life. Who holds fast to God's word like it's their greatest treasure? Servants hold to the word. So that in the day of Christ, Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even as Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And you know how the passage ends? Likewise, you should rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Because that's the heart of a servant. You'll never find greater joy than being a servant. You'll never find greater purpose than being a servant. And you'll never find a greater reward and being a servant. The fourth rule of the spiritual road, I'll embrace the role of a humble servant. There's a passage in Galatians 3 that I'm sure most of you know. You've probably have heard it many times. We use it many times when we're offering an invitation. It's the words of the Apostle Paul where he says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And tonight, if there's anybody here who has never been baptized into Christ tonight, you can put on Christ. You can put on that robe of salvation that Isaiah talks about in in Isaiah 61. You can put on your Lord in that redemptive covering, in that white garment that you see in the Revelation. But here's something else you get to put on. And listen to what Paul says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ to 
put on that towel, to put on that heart, to put on that life of the servant. What an honor that the Lord has called us to be His Christ to a world that needs to see a light. If that's you tonight, if that is you tonight, won't you please come while we stand and while we sing?